Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. In this episode I speak with Tony Corrales. Uh, Tony has an incredible story. He is originally from England and originally a punk rock musician. Yes, he headlined a punk rock band that toured the world. But since then he and since moving to Australia, Tony has spent the last 10 years working between online and offline marketing for not-for-profit organizations along with consulting work in digital strategy and operations. In 2020 he launched the ethical fashion label No Skin along with the Producing with Purpose podcast which is now evolving into PWP Studios where he and his team provide consulting services and coming soon online education to make your good business a great business. Uh now before we begin I have to say that the thing I fear the most while recording a podcast to not happen actually happened. The SD card got full and I stopped recording midway through. Now Tony was gracious enough to backtrack and re-record, but there may be some continuity issues. So my apologies for that. Uh that being said, without further ado, here is Tony Corrales. Tony, thanks so much for joining me and and welcome to the On Meaningful Work podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great to do it in person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and um so so I first we, we first met at your Creative Morning talk a couple mm. of weeks ago and yep. um and yeah, I think just like me and everyone else in the room I was really blown away by your story and oh. um kind of what you've done and j- not so much what you've done but just the way you go about doing it that I thought uh I've got to have you on. So. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it went down well. I was a little bit nervous for that one, so it obviously went well enough if you've asked me to come and speak with you now, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so I just put this over. Oh yeah, that's just so that we know. Yeah, perfect. Um so maybe to start off with where where are you from? Tony, where did you grow up? Um Oh, so, uh, I that shouldn't be a hard question should it it's not a hard question. Um I was born in Spain and mm. I lived there until I was 4 and then I moved to the south coast of England. Um my family relocated to the south coast of England. Um hence why I sound a lot more English than I do Spanish. Yeah. Um but walk around with the name like Antonio Corrales. Uh, <laughs> um Cool name. Yeah, yeah. Cool name but yeah. really awkward when people ask you to speak Spanish and you can't. Yeah. Uh, So no I lived there for and then I grew up on the south coast of England in a place called Portsmouth. Yeah. Okay. Um I moved to London in my mid 20s. Sure. Uh, are your parents Spanish or were they Um my dad is like kind of three quarters Spanish if that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> my mum's half English, half Dutch. It's a, it's a real mixed bag, but you know, such is the case in Europe as well, you know. Mm. And there's a, of course there's the Irish grandma as oh, well. Yeah, there's got to be course. the Irish grandma. Yeah. The so, Irish yeah. Catholic grandma. Oh, very much. Yeah. So. No, well, not as much anymore, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely can put that on when she wants to. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. Um, I've had one of those. Uh, my grandma was around uh, from India and my grandma was from the Portuguese part of India. Oh, wow. Which yeah. is Goa. And yeah. so yeah so very strict catholic upbringing thanks yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> yeah excellent um so so you went to school in the, in the south of england there or? yeah i did so um that for anyone who would call me out on it who listens from where i'm from as well mm. there's a very small town called fareham which is like sandwiched in between two cities and i went to school there it's mm. a very pleasant area like you know it's it's um 
looks a little bit more run down these days when I go back and visit. But maybe mm. it's just because you remember things when you're a kid as being a lot more bright and sunshine in the summers and things. But yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty standard little uh, little pocket of England. Yeah, wow. Um, and um, what what were you like in school? Did you enjoy mm, school? Or? Interesting. <laughs> um, I was I was pretty good in school. I mm. I very much I do aim to. It was definitely a kind of aimed please kind of kid I wasn't mm. I wasn't a naughty kid I was pretty good mm. um pretty pretty academic quite enjoyed school you know not the not not a popular kid but yeah. kind of got got my way through and it was a good solid seven out of ten experience okay <laughs> that's uh usually when when they when I ask people to rate something I'd say from one to ten but you're not allowed to say seven <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's because seven is such a kind of like neither here Middle nor there the answer. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose I'm thinking of like very early years of school that was like that. As I got more into like, you know, 15, 16, that was, and I know we'll talk about that. That was when mm -hmm. I kind of found my calling in more alternative music scenes and punk scenes and things like that. That's mm -hmm. when it sort of shifted a bit. But even through that, it was always very, um, I actually enjoy, I even now, more so now, as I think a lot of people in their 30s would say, mm. I love learning. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, but I've always been a huge reader. I've mm. always loved books and getting into arts and things like that. So I got to, you know, I got to do a lot of that in school, which was nice. Mm. So it was, it was a decent experience. Uh, and, and when you were school age, were, were there any, um, were there any books that stood out to you? That, that you think back now and think... <laughs> I, I guess it depends in what sort of age we're, you know, we're talking. I think ones then that became of note, um, and probably again in that sort of 14 to 16 thing, I, I definitely would push myself. Yeah, so I think it's probably three. One, and I probably, looking back, didn't fully understand them or comprehend them that well. Mm -hmm. um, but one would have one would have been The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, mm. which was obviously that's pretty heavy to be reading at that age. I definitely yeah. wasn't fully comprehending yeah. it. But it was an insight into that kind of reading. Did you did you have to hide that from your Irish grandmother? <laughs> no, she was always pretty good. Like okay. she because yeah. the other book I was gonna say actually came from a suggestion from her and mm. it was one of her favourite books and now probably my favourite book of all time is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she got me again reading that when I'm like 15. So yep. the philosophical side of that, I've since read every couple of years. And I, I really feel like I read it maybe in COVID during mm. lockdown. I read it again. And I think that was the time since I've become a lot more interested in philosophy as well that yes, I yeah. finally really understood that book. Yeah. Or at least probably still didn't fully, you know, I think you could read that book 30 times and not fully understand it. Mm. But definitely, um, yeah, put a lot more of the pieces together. Uh, that's definitely one I've been meaning to revisit because I read it when I was 18. Yeah. It blew my mind, but I, I understood maybe 20% of it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting yeah. one. Yeah, it's um, and I think it, it does come from a place of like, probably especially in COVID and just before that and leading through it. Hmm. I just, I always kind of try and have a bit of a, a side thing of what I'll be learning at the time. Like I read a lot hmm. of business books and I read a lot of motivational stuff and stuff that hmm. gets me in the zone to work and, you know, I absorb myself into, um, you know, fashion and environmental things as well. Mm -hmm. And then I'll try and have something a bit of an aside. So like, I'll try and drill down into maybe some economics for a while or mm -hmm. into philosophy or something like that. Yep. Um, and yeah, philosophy has been one that stuck with me. So then returning to that book, mm -hmm. it made a lot more sense. Yeah. Do you recall uh, as a young person, what uh, particularly grabbed you about that book? Um, 
the funny thing is, is and it's still a part that grabs me now, mm. is is the journey and the traveling. Yeah. So mm. now I read it, and this is why I say I have a much better understanding of the philosophical side where um, there's a whole discussion around the, you know, the meaning of quality and things like that, mm-hmm. the philosophy of quality. Mm. But if you take away, it's almost two books. There's one that's got the whole philosophical mindset and the whole investigation into that side. Mm. And then there's the whole side, which is this guy motorbiking around America. And that part of it mm. was the part that grabbed me um, yep. because that still is, you know, I mean, I've been lucky enough to travel around and tour around America in a van, but I'd still mm. love to do it on, the, on a motorbike. Bike, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that part was always a real big grab for me as well. That was that was it. Like the sense of adventure was huge. Mm. And and how about the God, God delusion? Like as a young person, how did that? I think that one is, that's when I actually have been meaning to revisit because realistically you know i read that at 14 15 to i think to just be a, i don't know what to say just a, an angry teenager but like you know it was coming from that place of um it was almost to just give myself some sound bites to mm-hmm. be a little bit you know a little bit that way yeah. <laughs> i mean it very much aligns with my i'm i'm not a religious person um but it's you know that's it's just pretty much in each to their own thing but at the time it was it was when at that age whatever you latch on to at least for me at that time I like to be quite abrasive about mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel like I was using that as like to fuel my arsenal of going back and even in conversations with like my grandma or something yeah, to go yeah, back and yeah. be like yeah but what about this, and this? <laughs> so yeah I think I um I probably read that book at the time for the wrong reasons and actually mm. I did revisit not long ago and as I can I can live without I've I've got my own opinions on this. I don't really yes. need to delve too much into Richard Dawkins' opinions on this. Sure, yeah. So, um, and and you mentioned a third. Was there a third? Um, the third, I'm trying to think what it was called now, which is obviously kind of made. But um, I started reading a lot of Michael Moore as well, and that was oh yeah, uh. um, and also getting more into me. I can't think what the book was called, but I know I got it was around the whole time of Fahrenheit 9/11. Him doing stupid all of that white stuff. men was it? I think it was his one after that. Okay, yeah. I've totally blanked. It was there when I was thinking about <laughs> it. It'll come back in like 10 minutes and I'll just shout sure. it out for yeah. no reason. Mm. Um, but that one was, I think that as well was just like an introduction into politics. And mm-hmm. obviously I was living in the UK, but American politics, has all, it's, it's very accessible mm. in a way because there's so much literature on it. It's quite Hollywood literature around American politics. Yes, yeah. Whereas if you pick up a book about English politics, it feels like very heavy and a lot mm. more inaccessible especially when you're like probably 15 16 yeah um and again that was when i was listening to a lot of political punk music mm-hmm. who would reference people like michael moore so i was like oh I, yep. i need to know about that mm. and i mean it's probably been the case to be honest for a lot of my life is i've known more about american politics than australian or <laughs> english politics same here yeah. Uh, yeah i mean I'm, i mean you, even like the recent election i've been just following it non-stop whereas i yeah. have no idea what's going on in australian uh, politics I, I know, it's right it's <laughs> It is just, um, mm. and it is one of those things, the more you learn about it, the more you're absorbed in it, the more it's easier to follow and keep up with. Mm. Um, and I think that's it, is because I started following American politics as a kid mm. then, and you know, I suppose through my early 20s as well, I stayed with that. So it's kind of like I've, you know, I'm on series 10 now or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not jumping in late in the game, so. Yeah, uh, and and as a young person, uh, what, um, What were your your music influences? What 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 were what were your parents listening to? Yeah, yeah. it's an interesting. So mm. I definitely um, grew up a lot on English 
on English punk and mod music and things like that, like yep. um, bands like The Clash and The Jam, mm-hmm. um, especially The Jam, that was like my dad's favorite band growing up. Oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah. And even then things like Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel and that yeah. kind of, round. but it was always, it was always a lot of, you know, um, musicians, music, or like, you know, instrument-based music and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I think it was definitely growing up in that realm. It's funny because I just, I just think of the jam pretty mm-hmm. much as like my upbringing, and I've still got like my dad's jam records now wow. um, that I yeah. still have in my place. Which is, I was talking to a friend about it because we were listening the other night. Mm. Just a couple of friends coming around, hanging out and playing board games, and yeah. pizza or whatever. <laughs> nice. And it's like the one thing you know, because they were just calling me out for being a hipster with my vinyl collection as they yes, as they do. It's a prerequisite to live in live in this area. Exactly. Like, yeah. what else are you going to do? <laughs> um, but I was saying how it's, it is nice that I could put on that music and be like, oh, this is, you know, music I grew up with, but I'm putting on this record that the exact same one that my dad used to put on, yeah. probably when he was even younger than me before I was born, he was putting this on with his friends around. Yeah. I'm like, that's really nice to have that, you know, that physical artifact of this like this album that's gone through yeah um so i think that's really that's really cool and that was what i yeah grew up with a lot of that Mm. um and then i suppose he he was into punk music but sort of like a bit more of the mod side of things as Mm. well and then that opened the gate for me to then get more into punk music so so the mod were bands like the who and the kings yeah a lot more of that like very british kind of thing and then Mm. I started getting into a bit more of the punk side of it, like The Clash and The Pistols, which my dad obviously grew up with as well. Mm. Um, and then a lot of it as well then came in at the same time was a lot of the American West Coast yeah, punk music yeah. that was coming mm. in, like real pop punk bands like your Green Days and Blink-182. Mm. Like, I loved that. I was, yep. you know, skateboarding around. <laughs> they were really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, <laughs> um, but then, like, quickly got into, I suppose, more, more of the punk rock that influenced them as well like bands mm-hmm. like the descendants and no effects so yeah. i'm starting to go into that tangent now but um no that's great and that yeah. was where it start that's where it starts to open up and then you listen mm. to all of their influences and mm. it's such a huge subculture that i got pretty like caught up in that which was yeah which was great um besides the music though what was it about that subculture that um grabbed you um i you can turn that back on if you like oh no it's fine it's, it's just pretty heavy um yeah. I think, but I think the subculture as well, it is a subculture Hmm. for, it's funny because at the time as well, it was a subculture that was very much for the people who didn't fit in and always Mm -hmm. will, punk is always the counterculture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely felt like, you know, I was, I had my group of friends at school and I had a pretty good time at school, but I certainly wasn't in like the popular, I wasn't the sports type and Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, So... Yeah, like, I mean, I started playing guitar when I was 13, when I got my dad's guitar handed down to me mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm. Started playing the jam and yeah. that, and then got into that kind of music. Mm. So I think it's um, it's great because it's not like I found that genre of music and there were loads of other people, so it gave me a place to fit in. Mm. It just gave me a real confidence in not fitting in, yeah. which I think yep. is a great thing. It's like, it's like, yeah, I don't fit in, and that's mm. great. I don't want to. I want to... Mm. Like, you know, I want to sit here on my lunch break, like with my headphones on listening to no effects. And yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just so it's like you felt, um, hmm. yeah, felt a lot more home in that world and just hmm. love the music as well. You know, yeah. It just, it just grabbed me. So that was cool. Sure. Um, also, you know, one, one thing that grabbed me at your talk at Creative Mornings was um, 
how this punk rock ethos kind of uh, got into your DNA somehow and then that mm. kind of uh, influenced how you live your life in a way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does hugely. And I think mm. it's it's always funny to me in a way because I don't know, there are certain types of music that mm. give you a, that give you that kind of thing to follow in a way or like mm. that set of, let me call it guidelines, but that, that way of life. Like people who grew up in the eighties listening to metal like Metallica and Iron mm-hmm. Maiden and stuff. Mm. And that was that was it. That was their whole thing. It was like, Well, I know what to wear because I you know, I wear my cut off sleeve denim jacket and grow my hair long yeah. and I listen to Maiden. <laughs> mm. And it was similar with punk music as well, is mm. it gave you like, you know, I wore what was you know what was in the punk scene and what was mm. growing up with that mm. it's like this was you know this was before skinny jeans were skinny jeans and everyone was wearing them i would go to camden in london which is like the home of old school punk in london as well mm-hmm. and go to the little like side streets from the vintage stores and buy like the skinniest jeans you could find yeah <laughs> so it's like you get into the whole culture of it but mm. then the thing with punk that i think it has that maybe even metal doesn't have mm. is that the songs have then got a lot of the time an underlying message or point to them as well mm-hmm. so you take bands like you know you listen to something like iron maiden and a lot of it is mm-hmm. quite fantastical and it talks about these crazy things and but i mean i'm sure a metal someone into metal would say mm-hmm. you're missing the point there's all this stuff yeah, as well but yeah. for me that was my perception um whereas you listen to a band like the clash and this is in the 70s talking about you know racism and inequality and things that are happening in london or taking influence from sounds from around the world and bringing Mm. it in. There was a real message of unity and stuff. Um, So it's like, it was actually like the progressive environment Mm -hmm. from the seventies onwards. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of obviously anti-establishment, anti-authority, but it just opens you up to a whole new line of questioning, which was all of that. It was just this melting pot of not just taking things at face value Mm. and investigating things a bit deeper. That was, yeah, just a real like, I wouldn't even say it really attracted me and it's just once you open the door mm. and you put your foot in and then you get sucked into it then it's just this ongoing cycle of learning yeah um, and i guess that's it is like there was, i did a lot of learning through mm. punk music as well yeah we I'm, I'm not the biggest punk fan um yeah. <laughs> that's right <laughs> but it's but quiet taste yeah yeah but 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 it, I, I, I am a huge music fan, though, so mm. so I've definitely come across you know a lot of punk bands like Clash and Ramones yeah. and, and so on, Patti Smith, um, yeah. you know. And there, I, I think in the in the early days as well, there was this sort of you know uh, DIY ethic of punk where you know the, the you know big re- record labels didn't want to touch them, so yeah. they had to really get in there and do it themselves and put out their records themselves and. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge thing about it. And I mean, that's mm. a whole, there's a whole question and discussion around ethos and punk rock between DIY mm. and selling out major labels and everything as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it. It's like looking back now, I mean, you know, it was a very fair, like I said, Ferrum was a nice town to grow up in. Mm. That's it. it. It was like, it was okay. And you don't really, when you're a kid growing up as well, you don't really have perceptions or understandings of, class and status and things like that in the same way that you do as you grow up Mm -hmm. and i think like you realize that when it is like kind of you're in this working class background Mm. and things open that up to you as well and it's just um like that diy ethic becomes 
a lot more inspiring because mm-hmm. you see these people who can come up from and in a lot of places as well a lot of the bands came up from much rougher or um, you know impoverished areas than I would grow up in mm. so even when I felt like things were out of reach for me or you know it was not something you could achieve coming from like a small town mm-hmm. I'd see all these guys who were doing it from like anywhere and everything and mm-hmm. doing it with a guitar that didn't have the right amount of strings and they mm-hmm. couldn't sing but it didn't matter because yeah. it was you only about the three chords yeah. that's it you yeah. need three chords and a good message and mm. like and a good attitude yep. or a bad attitude that works <laughs> well um and that was it and that was all mm. you needed so it was for me that was inspiring and you know i've talked to other people and said there's a there's a lot of also anger and misery in punk music as well and mm-hmm. you know i also liked other music that was a little bit more depressing or a little bit more downtrodden and stuff mm. and i'm like if i grew up listening to hip-hop where it was all about you know cash and girls and stuff mm. like that would would that have been even more aspirational would i have been like a 25 year old millionaire because mm. i'd grown up with that rather than thinking like it's okay i'll just be angry and live in a squat or yeah. in a van and <laughs> But I think mm. it was, yeah, like that DIY attitude that you just need to grab what's around you and make it work. For me mm. at the time, made everything feel possible, mm-hmm. but also made me feel like I didn't need, you know, materialistic things or superficial things. It was like I was happy to just yep. have a purpose. Mm. Um, and then as I've grown up, like that's never left me. I've definitely changed my attitude and views in other ways. Mm. Um, but yeah, that underlying sense that as long as you've got a purpose pushing Mm. you forward or you've got something to believe in that's extremely powerful to keep and that's you know that's the one thing that i've really retained from that scene yeah wow um so so thinking back on on your childhood though were were there any um experiences that you look back on and you think okay that that really influenced who i am today Mm. yeah it's a tough one i think um i think it is like it was getting into that. I mean, if, if we, you know, if we weren't having this conversation up until this point and somebody just asked me that question out of the blue and it's mm. like, what experience? I would say it would be discovering like punk music and just mm. becoming extremely, I guess I, I wasn't the most confident kid growing up. Mm. Um, but then it gave me, getting into that gave me a whole new realm of confidence. Mm. Like it was very, and I think that's what it is. It's like, I was really confident in not fitting in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is ex- that's an extremely powerful thing to to adapt to instead of like trying to change my personality to mm. fit in or like gain confidence it's like nah this is who i am and i'm really confident in that mm. take it or leave it yeah um so that was pretty defining and i mean one of my childhood things that was massively shaping as well was this was 2002 so i've been like 14 mm-hmm. um and because i like as much as i loved like I got into hardcore punk, East Coast hardcore, all that kind of thing. Mm. But I loved Blink-182 because mm. I was a kid of that era. Yeah. And like <laughs> you do. Um, and they were going to come to, they were going to come to the UK. And that was when Tom DeLonge hurt his back and couldn't come to the UK and tour. Mm. And I was devastated. <laughs> like I'd just been looking forward to that count down the days for a long, long time. Mm. And my dad then kind of took me out of school mm. and, flew us to America from the UK and booked tickets to go and see them there because they cancelled their UK tour. Now, obviously, that's a massive, you know, it's an amazing thing to get to do and come from a place where I was lucky enough to have that. But even retrospectively looking back as well, I realised like how 
that wasn't something that we could just afford mm -hmm. to do. Like that was, mm. you know, I, I know he would have been paying that off for a year after. Yeah, um, wow, that's incredible. And yeah, we went to that show. And then mm. afterwards I got like my first guitar that was like my guitar, not one that was handed down. Mm. And I came back from that. It's like, I'm starting a band. That's all I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm going to go and do that. And that was like the game changing moment. So mm. on one hand, it's like, yeah, it was a real, what a luxury thing to be able to do as a kid to get like, mm flown out to go on vacation to america and like go and see the show where, where did you see them in, in america uh, i saw them in florida wow okay. yeah, yeah it was yeah so it was it was awesome like so cool and mm. i mean at the time i was obviously stoked to be going yeah and looking back now i'm like yeah it's just so grateful to have had that mm. opportunity because that was a real game chat like it wasn't a game-changing opportunity or like a life-changing situation where something really bad happened and mm -hmm. that made me come back mm -hmm. with like this fire and grit i was like well oh, i got to see you know i got to see exactly what i want to do and i think that's mm -hmm. why i then kind of fell in love with america as well yeah um seeing that there it's like i want to be around here like surrounded mm -hmm. by the palm trees and the punk rock music and yeah that like that kind of set me up with the fire to move forward i think yeah and just on america like i've been there a couple of times and yeah i mean people love to it's it's a very let's just say complicated place, but yeah. you can't beat the optimism. Like once you're there, it's yeah, it's, it's um, mm. it's a tough place. Like mm. I was talking, I was with an American friend of mine a couple of nights ago, and he's he grew up in Vegas, and he's got zero desire to ever go back there, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I can understand. And yeah. you know, a couple of the guys I played in the band with have now moved to like America. One of one has now since left again. He was like, nope, didn't yeah. <laughs> didn't like that once I got there. Mm. Um, and I know that would probably be, I, you know, I have lived there for a little while and it is a, it's a screwed up place right mm. now. Um, and there's opportunity, but there's also a massive lack of opportunity mm. for a lot of people as well. Yeah. It is, you know, the gap, the gap between the wealth gap is huge, of course, mm. but the opportunity gap is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the rate of success to get mm. that opportunity is also, you know, there's very big discrepancies in that as well. Mm. Um, but I think you'll, you know, coming from being a kid and seeing that and then having times where I'd then be out there and touring. Like, I mm. guess every time I went there was because I'd achieved something or mm. like something good was coming. So I've, yes, it's yep. definitely a rose tinted view that I have of the place. Same, yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's still... So I think it's probably good. It's good that I don't move there permanently and yeah. figure that out because it would probably ruin the illusion a bit. I like to keep it as a you know, a, a mysterious mm. land of opportunity. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, can I ask about your dad? Um, yeah. What uh, What did he do for work? So he worked, um, when I was growing up, he worked on ships, um, like as a waiter mm. on ships. That mm -hmm. was, um, and he, it, I think as well, like, I mean, my mum's my mom's absolutely amazing too. And she was just like mega supportive, especially because it was me and her at home mm. a lot when I was growing up because he would be away like, It'd be like work two weeks on, one week home, work mm. three weeks on, one week home, that kind of thing. So, you know, two and three weeks, I guess, when you're a kid as well, are long, feel like long periods of time. But then mm. sometimes they probably don't. Sometimes they just feel like nothing because, you know, you're out with friends and doing other stuff. Mm. Um, so he was doing that. And, but he then, like, he's had a crazy kind of career progression of literally being like, I think, yeah, waiting tables on ferries that would go between England and France. Mm -hmm and like living on there for stints to then eventually being like and welcome back <laughs> yep cool
so far, listeners, we had a few uh, SD card issues, <laughs> shall we say? <laughs> yeah, we got through it. We got through it. Um, so where we left off, where we left off, Tony, we, I, I think you, you were just finishing off talking about uh, the influence. I, I asked about you know the influence that your dad had. Yeah, and that how you look back on that. Um, could you? Uh, uh, and you're talking about his career and how he mm-hmm. was in working in ships and so on. Could you finish that? Finish that, finish yeah. that thought? <laughs> sure. So I think I got to a point where I was saying he was, you know, he started working as a waiter on ships, on ferries, um, away for a few weeks at a time, back for short stints, which was cool. Was, um, so, yeah, I think, and I, sorry for people listening if I'm repeating myself now. Um, can't remember exactly what I covered, but... He then had a pretty successful career in his industry after that, like some really crazy jobs actually and did really well. Mm. And it definitely came from a point of, um, I mean, he's a terrible procrastinator as mm. well. I mm. And we do share that trait. I can be pretty bad for that, but I've sort of trained myself out of that a little bit. Um, but yeah, he really kind of put in the time and effort and the hustle and he always um, put a lot of, I mean, there was definitely pressure from him at times that mm. was, you know, you should be doing more I should be telling you to stop rather mm. than telling you to do something. Um, so, but it was kind of good to have that, although it made us fall out quite a bit and have some issues. Mm-hmm. I definitely carry that with me now and the work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a good balance because then my mum was also someone who was just extremely supportive. And I think she had a lot of confidence in me that I would make the right decision or do the right thing at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, so she just sort of like had the door open for me to make my decisions on my terms. And then, um, you know, with the trust that I'd know when to ramp it up a gear or when to do things the right way. And mm. also that I'd find my way eventually. I think she had enough faith that I was a smart enough kid to find my way there, mm. even if I took a few interesting turns yeah. on the way. And speaking of interesting turns, like your mind was pretty made up on being a musician. Yep. Uh, as we covered after he saw Blink-182. Yeah. Um, how did your parents feel about that? I think because my dad had had his time of trying it as well, he was very encouraging of it. And he he always encouraged me massively with the music. I think my mum was encouraging of it because she knew that it was what I was really passionate about. I don't think she necessarily, um, you know, I don't think it would have been her first choice if that's what I'm going to do. Cause she knew like the unpredictability about it. Mm. Um, but yeah, she. I mean, she was very easygoing and it was just supportive, like always immensely supportive of the fact that like, I'd be bumming around working random part-time jobs and stuff. Mm. I mean, I did get very lucky that I actually spent some time when I left college and I'd done film and media. Mm. I got employed by the college as soon as I left Mm -hmm. um, to be like a teaching assistant for the film and media department Mm -hmm. where I would do things like format SD cards and um, (laughs) help them out. Which come in handy. (laughs) Yeah. You never know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was like, you know, helping students with their video editing projects and things like that and, Mm -hmm. you know, running the the media suite and stuff so but that was great because it was also a job that um it meant it got my parents sort of off my back a bit I suppose because mm. I was making a bit of money and working part-time hours mm. so that was great at least I wasn't always you know coming to them and being like I need this and I need that you know I was I was able to pay my way in life mm. um but it was also great because I was on uh, education hours which mm. meant I had summers off and half-term breaks that you know you get paid pro rata so yeah we would then do a lot of our touring and stuff during those times mm. and that that was awesome for me it like meant that I was able to kind of retain a bit of a job 
Um, and the main thing was having a sort of semi-consistent job as well that I didn't mm. have to keep coming back and be like, right, now I need to find another cafe to work in or another, you know, bar to work at. I just had that job from 8.30 till 12.30 every day. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the time was mine to go and try and make it in the punk scene. Yeah. You know? so, no, it was, it, that was a very fortunate turn of events as well. Uh, and speaking of making it in the punk, in, 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 I was going to say the funk scene, but the funk oh, scene. Oh, God, no. no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you start to get the band going and start to really make a name for yourself and start to make, uh, I suppose, car water living that way? Yeah, so, I mean, we it was very DIY, like we talked about DIY was the way. Um, yeah. Remind me if I've said any of this on the previous bit, but, but we have yeah. recorded, but I don't, yeah, yeah okay, so <laughs> that's all good. Um, so a big thing we did to start off is, I think we just took matters into our own hands a lot, but it wasn't a conscious thing of, guys we need to do it this way and do that we just sort of instinctively did things because no one else you know the music scene is brutal mm. um even if you're kids like 17 playing in bands and stuff it's still you know it's still brutal mm. and it is to this day even more so i swear but we just knew we had to do things to get there so we started off and we we had aspirations and we would just go towards those goals mm. and at the time we didn't think yeah like because we're entrepreneurs who are hustling like that didn't that it was just like we want to do a thing we will do a thing mm. um and there was a venue in portsmouth where we grew up a 400 person like capacity venue and that for us that was the goal at first it was mm. like we couldn't imagine anything bigger than that mm. that was the venue that was where all the bands we loved would come through and play so it's like well how do we get a show there well the best thing we can do to guarantee a show there is we'll hire the venue we will mm. put ourselves on the bill mm. we'll get a couple of like friends bands who can sell a few tickets to open and this is you know this isn't an uncommon way to go about it mm. but then it was like right we need to now justify our place there and show this venue and mm. show everyone who said that we couldn't play there mm. that we're you know more deserving of it and we would go out and we'd be in the back of the car with a megaphone and a book of tickets because mm. I remember that back in the day you'd get books of tickets yeah. and you had to tear yeah. them out and hand them out. No no mm. digital tickets. Yeah. And, you know, tickets would be like £5, $10, whatever. Mm. And we'd go out with a megaphone and stop and like, you know, groups of people hanging out in the street and we'd stop and be like, we'd have the music playing in the car mm. as well and be like, come and see our band. It's £5 a ticket and everyone would carry cash. Yeah. And of course, like it's game of numbers. You know, yeah. Four out of five groups of people would, you know, tell you to do one and keep driving. <laughs> but one in five groups of people would be like, yeah, okay, like we'll take a couple of tickets. Mm. And we'd just drive around day after day. Like, you know, I'd finish work at 12.30. We'd jump in the car mm. and we'd go and do it. We'd walk up and down the high street and stop people. You know, it's basically like when people try and stop you and get you to donate to charity, but we were trying to sell tickets to the punk show. Yeah, wow. Um, and to us at the time, that was just like... That's what you do. That's just what you do. That's, you didn't see yourselves as hustlers. Or, no, like, yeah. that was just... That's just how... How are we going to sell 300 tickets hmm. and not stand up there and look stupid like playing a no one? Yeah. And, you know, and then we'd do other things or we'd get... Um, and we'd print or, like, photocopy posters and put them up everywhere. Mm. Um, and it that is a lot more of the DIY punk effort you know that used to work I I don't know if that still would work mm. to be honest I mean people wouldn't you'd probably have to go around with a square terminal to take card payments if yes. you were going to do it but um, QR codes made a roaring comeback yeah exactly <laughs> so but honestly like you know if you live in a city like Melbourne mm. and you're playing a show and you walked up and down Brunswick Street and you 
were like, hey, we play in a punk band that's like this, this and this. Mm. Tickets are 10 bucks. Tap here and buy a ticket and it'll get emailed to you. Mm. Like, come and support the local music scene. You'd probably sell tickets quicker that way than you would a lot of other ways. Like, you know, people would... Some people would, again, tell you to keep moving, but some yeah. people would respect the hustle. They know what it's like. Yeah, And I suppose when you were doing that, it was before... I wouldn't say before the internet, but definitely before social media and before yeah. things started to take off that way. Yeah, and I mean, we yeah we were a band in the era of MySpace as well, yeah. um, and we would and I remember as well we would spend hours upon hours going through MySpace, and you could you know you could just add people as a friend and you could mm. send them a message. Mm. So we'd have a copy and paste message that was like about the band. We'd add the person as a friend. We would then. Um, send them a message that would have one thing like, hey, we looked at your profile and saw that you like this band and this band because people would always say what bands they like in their profile. Mm. We think you'd love what we're doing, this, this and this. And then they could go on the page and hear your music. And we would have four, the four of us in the band would sit there for hours every night mm. all on an individual like laptop or computer doing this mm. or taking turns whilst we're sitting there getting drunk as and like hanging out and listening to music. Mm. But that was how we'd build up like a following of thousands of people mm. and start conversations with people and all that kind of thing. And it wasn't like, let's sit here and hustle. That was just what we did because also what else are we going to do? Mm. All right. You might be someone sitting there playing Tony Hawks on the PlayStation whilst yeah. it's happening, but mm. that was just what we did night after night, like all the time. Mm. Um, and if you worked on a business with that, like intent, mm -hmm. you'd make, you'd make waves. Like, mm. but we get caught up in, Oh, it sounds like overtime. Well, that sounds like, yeah, is yeah. the payoff worth it? We just yeah. did it because we were kids mm. and we wanted people to hear our music. Mm. Um, and during this time, did things mm. then start to happen for you guys? It definitely built up a bit. And like we would have, you know, people would come to those shows and we would make a big show of that as well. And we would mm. have, you know, we would hire pyrotechnics and make a big deal out of things. And so the people would come and see it. And they'd be like, yeah, well, you stopped me in the street and you sold me a ticket. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was okay. Like, we had to make sure that we mm -hmm. then, well, you know, when you've got them through the funnel, yeah. <laughs> you've got to convert them at the end and you've got to make mm -hmm. it worth their while. You've got to over-deliver on the promise. Yeah. Uh, and that was what we did. Again, it wasn't, I mean, that was intentional. We knew that, like, we've got them through the door. Now it's our job to, now it's really our job to make them come back again. Like, yeah. Yeah. increase the lifetime value of the customer. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's, um, <laughs> a little less punk, punk rock but <laughs> yeah <love>. exactly <laughs> um but again that's mm. just and it's funny because that is what you're doing mm. you are essentially making a sales funnel and converting people and increase over delivering on your promise and getting lifetime value mm. you just don't know that that's what all of that stuff is yeah. it's yeah. same principles apply mm. um and then we found ourselves wanting to get onto bigger tours that was the next step for us and again couldn't get in i mean we also weren't the best band that's probably why we kept getting knocked back yeah <laughs> but that didn't matter because we were confident in it mm. and then there were a couple of bands coming and i think the very first band we did it for was a band called it was the band rancid mm -hmm. and for us that was like that is a tour we should be on there's mm -hmm. a thousand two thousand people at their show every night mm -hmm. they need to hear us opening but we didn't get the gig because yeah. we weren't in that mm -hmm. realm we did eventually at one point then tour with them which was cool so we said, well, we'll go and every night they play on their like two week UK tour. Mm. We'll go outside the show with acoustic guitars and we'll play our songs and we'll play them to the line because people would be lining outside for an hour to get into the show. Mm. So it's like, we'll start at the front of the line. We'll play three songs. We'll try and sell some CDs, mm. tell people about the band. Then we'll, you know, move 
20 meters down the line and play to the next section mm. um knowing as well that people would drive home after the show with their cd and you know you've only got so many cds in your car yeah. back then yep <laughs> You've just had a great time at the gig. You've got your friends in the car. You're driving 45 minutes home. Mm. Yeah, chuck on. Let's see what this is like. And again, if you then have got a good product, mm. <laughs> you know, the EP or the album was good, then people would be around. And then we'd hit those towns after, maybe like two months later mm. on a tour mm. and go and play those places that we ran around so that those people who saw you in line would then come to your show. And that was how we built up a following around the country. Yeah, wow. Um, and then while this was happening, um, how were the dynamics within the band? Always good. Yeah. And it was, it was the real thing. And like when we started touring more professionally and heavily, I suppose, and like mm. we'd be doing two months in the US touring, living in a van all together. Mm. The amount of times people said to us, you guys just, you're always together. Mm. Um, and I found that really weird that people would say it until I later was in another band where everybody would arrive at a venue you know we all got on and it was fine but it's like all right well you've got to be on stage in three hours or back at the venue at three hours and everyone would just walk off and go and do their own thing go mm. get dinner somewhere on their own maybe now and again it'd be like oh i'm gonna go to this place does someone want to come mm. but it was very it's pretty lonely it's quite isolating especially because i was the newcomer to that band mm. but in my band is two months like we'd just always be always be together it's even mm. like you'd be at a venue because this was touring around the u.s at like a festival every day mm. and you've got a lot of free time as well it's like oh, i'm gonna go to walmart because i need to get some new socks you know like <laughs> something as stupid as that and it's like all right one person would have to stand back and like man the merch table or whatever but mm. the other two guys like yeah i'll come for a cruise we just mm. grab the skateboards go over to walmart like we were always together mm. after the show if we were going for beers always together like it was the whole point. Yeah, like yeah. we didn't care if we played to anyone. We didn't care. Mm. I mean, obviously, we had to make money to get to the next place. But we, as long as we were just having fun, mm. that was that was the main thing. And that's why we would sit there for hours adding people on MySpace. That's why we would get in the car and play outside because it was that, or we were going to hang out together, sitting mm. at home playing PlayStation. So, so we yeah. might as well do something that we enjoy doing the most, mm. and that was playing music. Yeah. But either way, we all would have been. We would have been hanging out together every night anyway. Uh, it, have you seen the uh, Peter Jackson's documentary on the Beatles? I haven't, no. It's incredible. Highly, yeah, highly recommended. But one, one thing that really, I think, stands out is even though the Beatles at that time were towards the end of end of their career to, as mm. the Beatles, you know, how much they just loved hanging out together and how much yeah. they just loved playing music, music together, like... 90% of what, what they did was just fucking around, you know? Yeah. Just playing songs that they loved. And, yeah. and that was it for it. Like, we were friends first and a band second. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was what mm. we did. So it was, like I say, we were either going to play music or we were going to play PlayStation and we preferred music. So yeah. <laughs> we went and did that. Uh, and so maybe fast forwarding then, how long yeah. did the band kind of stay together and what kind of led to, um, I suppose, you wanting to do other things or, mm. you know, so the band stayed together for seven years-ish, mm. about that. Um, I then got essentially poached into another band, mm -hmm. uh, which was a really challenging decision and a decision that I made. I don't necessarily like regret the decision. I think it was the right thing to do. And I then actually went back to my original band. So I went and did this stint with another band. It did not work out. I did not enjoy it because we weren't friends first, music second. It was It was like a job. 
Um, and they were more successful. There was more opportunity. Mm. But I just didn't respond well to that. I, I'd come from such a like an amazing dynamic mm. that to then be taken out of that, I was like, oh, is this what it can be like for other people? Is this why people kept saying to us it was weird that we were just like <laughs> got on so well? And the other guys were great. So I like, I got on with them fine. It just wasn't the same. Mm. Um, and I didn't love the music as much. It wasn't my thing. So it, you know, I didn't act brilliantly in that. I could have managed the situation better as well. Mm. In the end, parted ways with that band, which is the diplomatic way of saying I was kicked out. Mm-hmm. And um, and then that w- I mean that was a, then a big shift because now I had no band. Mm. At this point as well, I was like twenty five and which you know now seems extremely young but i was like man i'm 25 and i actually have no idea what i'm gonna do now mm-hmm. the interesting thing was i'd also seen that this band was a lot more successful and had a lot more of the um kind of professionalism of like they had the right manager mm-hmm. pr agents publicists like a uh, decent record label they had all the stuff that we didn't have as a diy punk band mm-hmm. and it was still like a real grind and i still looked at it and thought even there in that situation it's very very unlikely this is going to turn into anything mm-hmm. that i can do for a long time and make a living from yeah so that was a bit of a stark realization probably a good thing in a way because you know it did make me reconsider some other stuff um and that was when i i then moved to london and managed to get a job working in uh, a not-for-profit which was peter the animal rights organization mm-hmm. um on the marketing team in there zero qualification to do it mm. i just wanted to work for them because i was really active in the animal rights scene um and i didn't get the job but then the person who did got the did get the job pulled out because they paid not very well mm. and you know <laughs> they didn't want the job um but you have to be vegan to work there and mm. i had been since i was like 18 or whatever and i think they just didn't really have a choice it was me mm. or no one yeah. <laughs> um, so i got the job and i went in there and that was like the start of them working in marketing and not for profits and things like that mm. um i met what is my now wife working mm-hmm. there as well wow. so it was a real like shift of and i mean so, so lots and lots of good stuff came from it like yeah. it opened up the door to the next chapter of my life totally but the time itself was pretty miserable because mm-hmm. i'd just come out of you know when you when one door closes kind of thing yeah. yes another one opens but sometimes mm-hmm. it takes a year for the next one to open yeah and for that time in between you're just sat in a dark room so, <laughs> you so know for you though had you made up your mind that um your, your life as a professional musician had come to a close or was were you i think so like yeah. i think that was yeah that was the time for me i then i mean once i then there was about a year period when i first took that job that was pretty it was pretty grim times like still had fun i was living in london um but i wouldn't listen to punk music mm. i got just fully into jazz that was all i was into mm. um i couldn't listen like listening to punk music was like looking at your ex-girlfriend's instagram you know it was just like <laughs> i was like why am i doing this to myself it's just yeah. it's too raw mm. um but then after a year or so passed i hit up the guys from my original band and was like let's let's do another album let's do another tour mm. and i think it was because i i then had a whole lot to write about and mm. for me that's always been a thing like i still play music with some guys now mm. um i don't it's very much a like hobby thing mm. because I just like to write music. That's yeah. like, I may not be a touring musician, but I'll always be a songwriter. Yeah. So I've always yeah. got that. Mm. 
So we did another album, went and did another tour of the US, mm. um, which we were lucky to get back onto considering, you know, we'd taken some time away. And that was then like, I didn't, I didn't want to finish my career, so to speak, on a sour note. Yeah, yeah. So I went back and wrote like the album that I'm most proud of, went and did the tour that I had the most fun on. Mm. Because no longer it was like, this time it was appreciating that it was just me and my friends going to have fun. Mm -hmm. um, so that was like the best part. And then that, I guess that was kind of healing in a sense, because yeah. we got to do that. I got to finish, you know, finish my thing with my band, with my songs, like doing mm -hmm. our thing. And then I was like, all right, now I'm ready for the next chapter mm -hmm. fully. And that was when me and my partner, who's like I say, is now my wife, went traveling and mm -hmm. then came to Australia. Wow. So. And this was after working for For Peter, Peter yeah. 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 And then, so what, what did your career look like when you came to Australia? So very luckily, because um, my wife was working, I'd actually stopped working for Peter at that point and gone yeah. to the British Red Cross mm -hmm. and worked there for a while. Um, it's fine. It was a job. Mm -hmm. She got the opportunity. They said, if you're going traveling, you're going to Australia, you can actually work for Peter Australia when you get there if you want and we'll mm -hmm. sponsor you. So it was like, cool, let's move to the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. As much as I'd had that nice closure on my music career, mm -hmm. um, it still sucked. Like yeah. I was still... I didn't want to be there anymore. Mm. And I think not being able to tour and have that outlet, I wanted to travel instead. I still yeah. wanted the adventure. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I just wanted like a real clean, fresh start, I guess. Mm. So we found ourselves here. She was incredibly supportive of that as well and was happy to start fresh. Mm. Um, so I came here. Uh, the, the, funnily, the first job I like, we got here and we'd been traveling like flat broke, staying in an Airbnb. Mm. Like, and we're like, we can afford this for like five nights. I need a job. <laughs> um, <coughs> that's fine. I like the pressure. Mm. But the first job I got, like, there was plenty of stuff I was applying for. Mm. But the job I was able to get within like 48 hours was hustling charity subscriptions on the street. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> so, going to be the toughest. Yeah. That's the toughest gig. Whenever I see. Those people out there were like, man. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing when you're trying to sell. I can sell gig tickets, but it's real hard to sell. You know, yeah. it's hard to sell a monthly subscription to save the children or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I did that for, I literally did that for like two weeks. Mm. Um, because I'd also come from like, working at the British Red Cross, I'd actually become fairly like, you know, more established in what I was doing there. I was mm. copywriting acquisition campaigns that were going out to like a couple of million people across mm -hmm. the UK. So when I came and applied for this, I'm like, yeah, go for it. Like, mm. um, but I, I literally did it for like two weeks until I then had gone through the process and got another job here working for Save the Children, mm -hmm. um, where I was working as a like marketing manager kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Did that and then just got a bit drained in the not-for-profit space because Again, I hadn't, it was actually at that time that I started to get the concept or like the whole hustle thing and entrepreneurship. Mm. I'd never, I'd never thought that, I don't think I'd said the word entrepreneur like more than once in my life until I was, you know, 28 or something, 29. And then I started seeing that content on YouTube and things and like Gary V and all mm. that kind of thing. I was like, yep. oh, this, mm. this is kind of like the mindset I've always had. Mm. But now I realize this is a whole thing because that just wasn't my world. I was a creative. I was an artist. I was a musician. Yep. I was working in charity. It was all very much that side. I'm like, oh, mm. no, I'm, I'm a hustler. I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur. This is, this is what I do. Yeah. Um, Isn't that funny? As a musician, it was uh, like you always saw yourself as creative. But as a musician, you know, you selling tickets on the road was just something you did. Yeah. Rather than you thinking of yourself 
as an entrepreneur, or, which is exactly what you were doing. You were being an entrepreneur. Oh, exactly. Like yeah. all the things we did, I'm like, man, it's, mm. yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't start. I mean, I did start a business. I was managing the band and by the end of it, you know, we're, we're also selling by the time we're on tour, like, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a day in merch and t-shirts and things like that. So mm. we're organizing the logistics of at what venues the merch needs to come into, what our forecasting is for how much we'll sell, mm. like what our margins are, how much money we need for the tour and the budgets. Yeah. Because that was just like, if we don't do that, how do we do anything? Mm. But again, I didn't really, I was running a business yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even really ever think of it that way. Mm. I was like, no, I play in a band, but I've got to do some admin. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, it's, <laughs> you know, so it's a very weird thing. Mm to then see that stuff and be like, oh, now, now there's a name for it. And now there's stuff mm. I can learn about. Mm. And then I just found myself in the not-for-profit space feeling a little bit um, like it's not the most hustled environment. It's mm. quite chill. It's a little bit like, you know, working in government can be a bit slow-paced. Working in charity can be a bit slow-paced. Yeah, sure. Massive value in doing it. Obviously, it's a hugely important and quite fulfilling place to work. Mm. But then I started getting really like into, I want to work in... I want to work in tech and mm. I want to hustle and I want to mm. do that. So then I went and worked for a digital agency mm -hmm. doing kind of like operations, project management, digital strategy, that kind of stuff. Mm. And just um, with that, how did you, how did you get that job? Was it based on, because you, mm. your experience in, in those areas were quite limited, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know. So I applied for a job at an agency, looked amazing. I was like, man, this is like, looks like google there's you know they, bean they, bags there's bean, there's bean bags <laughs> everywhere man and breakfast when you arrive and like oh, coffee machines and stuff and yeah. it was you know it's it was in cremorne mm -hmm. it was very techy really yep. felt like that good clients and i found the website i was like i want to work there that is what i want i can go there and i can hustle and be an entrepreneur and like learn about all this stuff um i was like i'm going to apply and then my theory here was i'll apply and when i get rejected i'll say what would you have wanted me to have that I don't have to get into an interview um, but I got an interview and I was like cool even better I can say what in the interview did I not have mm -hmm. that you wanted and I'd been doing like I mean really I had been doing a lot of project management so I was managing marketing appeals and mm. you know all that kind of stuff so I had but I didn't know what a project manager in a tech agency really was mm -hmm. and they asked me questions that were technical like you know what's an API and what's it I'm like I have it's a Kanban board. Yeah, exactly. I, was like, <laughs> I don't know these things. And I remember them asking me a question and saying, to, what was it? It was, um, if, a, if a client asked you what's better, PHP or .NET, mm. what would you say? Mm. And obviously, I, I was clueless. I'd never heard of either of those things. I had mm. zero idea. I said, oh, I'd actually... Um, I'd actually have a sip of my water and pretend that it went down the wrong way and have a coughing fit and excuse myself from the room. I would then go outside and quickly Google what's better, PHP or .NET, <laughs> and then I'd come in and I'd give them the answer from the first thing I found on Google. Yeah, brilliant. And they were like, yeah, this guy can bullshit his way through a meeting. He's, he'll be fine. <laughs> um, and that was it because that is account management, project management mm -hmm. is about, it's about switching it on and yeah. you know being able to sit down and have a conversation and pull your way through. And that was the biggest thing, going back to what we talked about a while ago, the biggest thing I learned from my dad was the art of, not the art of bullshitting, mm. but like the art of thinking on your feet and blagging your way in. Every job he had was always two steps further than he should have been. Mm. And it's been exactly the same for me. Yep. I had no, you know, I had no right to get that job in Peter doing marketing. I had zero qualification. Mm. Um, I had 
even when I went to the Red Cross, I like put myself in way into the deep end. Mm. Um, this job in tech was way into the deep end. I'm good at interviews and I'm good at treading water until and not drowning, I yeah, guess is like true. the thing. Mm. Because then when I get the job, I spent a year like I didn't leave that office yeah. for a year yeah. until I was kind of like the head project manager for the agency within a few years and mm. like, you know, making a lot of the decisions and doing a lot of stuff there because once I get the opportunity, I'm going to run with it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's a skill set is it's hustling. Mm. Like it's just hustling mm. my way through. Yeah. And then, so you're making, you know, great progress in this agency. Like when yeah. did you start to think that there's something in me that needs to come out? I need to do mm. my own thing. And I think it's when that was when as well, like, I mean, I'd always managed to get these jobs and saying that when I first worked at Peter and I was 25 and I was having a bit of a bad time after the punk band stuff, I was a pretty useless employee. Mm. I, you know, I kind of got my interview, got my foot in the door and I didn't over deliver. Mm -hmm. So I, every day I showed up there and I thought they're going to fire me today. Mm -hmm. Like I always, and I hated that feeling. Um, but only when I kind of got this like hustle and grind in the tech space mm -hmm. in the, in the agency, was when I was like, I'm not losing this. Like, I will be the best thing here. But then it got to a point where I was working huge days um, and I was making a massive difference and I knew I was good at it because I put in the work and it all made sense to me, like that whole space and tech stuff. Like, mm -hmm. And the account management, project management, just chatting to people and getting through, I was like, this is like an interview mm. that I can turn it on for every day. That's my whole job. I'm like, this is, I was made to do this. Um, <laughs> But then I found, man, like, it doesn't matter how hard I work. The, the only thing I can do next is go and get a better job that pays a little bit more and does much of the same. Mm. And I'll keep doing that process, and that's good. But I was like, I want to know that if I'm going to sit here from 7 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, mm. making sure that I'm the best at this, I want a bigger payout. Mm. Um, so I decided to start my own business mm. and... The thing was then is I've learned so much since that point too. And I thought, well, for me, starting a vegan fashion label mm. was just like a thing I wanted to do. Yeah. I was like, it's great. It doesn't really matter what the business is. I just need to start. Mm. I like just mm. need to, you know, I just need to have a go at that mm. and figure it out. Turns out it's a pretty hard business to yeah. start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but just this feeling of, no matter what it is, I, I, I have to start. Yeah. Um, where did that feeling come from? Was it just... Um... I think it was like I was devoting a lot of my life to work. Mm. And I enjoyed it. Mm. But it was like... I think It's the same as being in a band. And this is the thing, right? I, I realized... And I'm talking like a year into this venture of this business. Mm. It's like, man, I have to show up every day and like get paid next to nothing for it work mm. extremely hard to try and get people to hear more and more about this brand mm. um sometimes like it costs you money to even show up and do it 90 mm. percent of people it's going to fail mm. five percent of people are going to scrape by a couple of percent of people will do okay and like one or two percent of people who start this will make a lot of money mm. uh, so it's the same as being in a band yeah. like it's mm. exactly the same concept mm. But in a way that was like, I didn't want to do it with music anymore. And, mm. you know, that's fine. But I realized that actually I'd, I'd started the same, the same kind of thing. Mm. Um, 
so I think that was it is I wanted to work on something that I was passionate about so that I could sit there like I used to mm. every night or I could go out and hustle it on the street or in shops or whatever it was mm. do all of those things that didn't feel like work and I wasn't going oh I work 12 hours today like mm. it seems unfair that I'm only paid this much mm -hmm. it's like no the hours the money it's all irrelevant now it's back to it's back to like the purpose-based hustle yeah um and that was where playing your guitar to people in line yeah playing the guitar to people in line or yeah. in this case trying to like um show people that you know non-leather footwear yeah. can be just as good like mm. i had a reason behind doing it it was something that i was passionate about it's also something that i just enjoy i enjoy the whole culture and the scene of it you know fashion and punk music go hand in hand For sure yeah um so yeah it was the same it's like it doesn't feel like i work mm. i mean i work hard on this business and it's very unrewarding sometimes and sometimes it's really rewarding mm. um but i never feel like i'm working and that was how it used to be playing music yeah what, what's the name of your business it's called no skin no skin yeah, yeah. and um so so maybe th thinking about your business now is there a favorite Failure, and when I say favorite mm. failure, in that it's something that you learned the most from, and that yeah, I think it's um, favorite failure is it's fact because in a way I don't feel like there's been any really distinct failure. I mean, there's definitely been lots, mm. um, but I think favorite like favorite wrong judgment to a favorite learning mm. is I was adamant in the first year, we need more products. We've got to mm. do more things. We need more products mm. um, because the more choice there is when somebody comes to our website or somebody comes to our store, the more chance they'll buy something because there's variation. And, you know, if you went into a supermarket and there was, you know, one loaf of bread and one thing of soy milk, you know, your choice is limited. It's, mm. it's like, well, this is not for me. I'll go somewhere else. Mm. But then I realized that, everything I'd learned about business and product-based business, I was ignoring the guidance I would give to other people mm -hmm. of keeping things simple and trying to scale one product to a good success and then introducing something new. Um, taking one product and being the expert and especially good in it. Like there's a reason why if you're in a band and you play music, you release an album and you have a genre and you have something that, because the people who come in, they want that thing from you. And you can branch out and you can evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Look at the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But you don't literally do a different song of a different genre of everything all the time. Yep. Because it's like, well, if we do an album of 12 songs and it has everything from hip hop to punk to like, you know, Ed Sheeran style <laughs> pop music, then there's something for everyone. Yeah. It's like, no, you've got nothing please for no anyone. You yeah. please no one. Yeah. Mm. So simplifying, refining that product down to the point where effectively you can make a million dollars from a single product. Mm. and then go okay we iterated that to like near perfection now introduce something else that's the guidance i would give everyone and we haven't mm. followed that so that's a pivot that we're now going through mm -hmm. is to actually simplify our product offering and try and make that million dollar product because we haven't yet done that and then go from that point forward mm. um yeah. so it's kind, of, it's kind of like steve jobs at the start of his second reign at apple he just came in and slashed all their product lines and yeah. focused on you know two or three that's it so i mean they were probably in a better place than we are now <laughs> um but yeah i'm i'm pulling a steve jobs we can call it that yeah, <laughs> so yeah. just uh, black total, total yeah exactly <laughs> um maybe we'll just make no no more products <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so that's like that's been the the biggest learning from i wouldn't say failure because we haven't failed by having too many products mm. but we've probably 
like limited our we've limited our ability to be known for one thing by operating this long trying to be a bit more of everything yeah. um and that means there's a lot of like you know over ordering and stock and money sunk in like we could have been more effective we could have been leaner and we probably could have scaled the business to bigger success by doing one thing and doing it well from day one but like i say i mean every day is learning yeah and i've learned a lot since and this is why you know i said i just need to start something because i'll learn i often say like and i actually say it less now because things are building up and going in the right direction but mm. i'm very pragmatic and i always said i need to start this business because it'll probably be my third business that cracks it or does well so the quicker i start my first one and fail mm. the faster i'm on my track to making all the mistakes to make yeah. the business that does well mm. i hope i don't have to go through three businesses to get there mm -hmm. Um, hopefully I can make the mistakes and they're not so costly that they, you know, shut us down. Mm -hmm. Um, but the whole point is, it's like fail fast yeah. is the whole thing yeah. on that. Um, so just to, just a couple of questions to close up. Yeah. But, um, we, we mentioned books at the start of the episode, mm -hmm. um, and books are, I think that were influential to you as an adolescent. Um, so thinking back now, just in terms of what you're doing, are there any books or other resources that you would recommend to people yeah i think um i think one of them is a book called relentless mm -hmm. um i think his name's tim gower or i might be completely off the mark the book's sure. called relentless i actually always listen to it on audible as well so i don't see his uh, <laughs> see the author's name mm. um he was the he was the physio and or like the coach for Michael Jordan and Kobe mm -hmm. Bryant and stuff like that for the Chicago Bulls. Mm. I've also become a massive sports fan. And like uh, there was a real tie in between like getting into entrepreneurship and Interesting, like yeah. I've, I got way more into sport. So yeah. that's a different thing now <laughs> because I think I appreciate the, I just appreciate um, people getting rewarded for intense hard work. Mm -hmm. So this is a real tangent, but I watched this morning before I came here because it was on last night, I watched the Brazil Grand Prix mm -hmm. Um, and George Russell, the English driver, won his first Grand Prix. Wow. And it was it was amazing, like, you know, and yeah. I've followed his career, and I was so excited for him mm. because I know that this guy has shown up time and time and time again and put in relentless amounts of effort, mm. and to see him, like, you know, tearing up to because he won his first Grand Prix, you feel that you like, this is intense effort, and I, I can't imagine, I don't work as hard as, a Formula One driver in anything, mm. and to finally get that win, that's extremely motivating now. Mm. Um, so I find a lot of like motivation in sport and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, Relentless is a book about how Michael Jordan and players like Kobe Bryant just find their complete drive and determination and stuff. So mm. that's a real good one to um, to learn a bit more about yourself and if you have if you have what it takes to operate in that way, and if you don't have what it takes to be like you know a michael jordan mm -hmm. in your mindset what some of the things are you can do to adjust your mindset to to be a little bit more michael jordan yeah. in the way that you operate um which that's is awesome. really cool mm. um so that's one that's great for mindset um what else i think i mean there's a lot of books like you know i could say there's a lot of seth godin books mm -hmm. on marketing and things mm -hmm. like that that are great um donald miller building a story brand is really good to think about branding but they're very like, and I like that they're, you know, they're not textbooks by any means, but they're actionable, mm -hmm. strategic books. They're great. But I'd value reading something um, like Seneca's 
that is from a stoic mm-hmm. more so mm-hmm. like both just as valuable but that one that's just nice for some perspective sometimes yeah. like you know to or even meditations i throw in there yeah exactly so like anything that anything just gives you a bit of better perspective mm-hmm. especially when the small things get very stressful like i've mm-hmm. become i've relied heavily on stoicism in my yeah, last much. couple of years yeah. Mm-hmm. um so yeah they're probably some of the things that i'd put in the reading list for now cool and in your work currently um what what makes you feel alive um getting out from behind the computer and finding finding that and this is i really don't do it enough and Mm -hmm. it's always on my mind and makes me think i need to go and do something like that today but Mm -hmm. anything that makes me feel like i'm walking up and down the street selling tickets Mm -hmm. that's what that's what does it i spend 95 percent of my time behind the computer Mm -hmm. and that's where i get the least effective work done and that's Mm -hmm. something i'm really trying to work on is what is because it is uncomfortable and the Mm -hmm. thing is as well as i used to have my three best mates alongside me doing it so doing it solo can sometimes feel quite different yeah um but yeah that that feeling of like shameless hustling makes me feel like because it's super uncomfortable Mm. it always was like Mm. the first time we pulled up alongside someone with a megaphone and was like come buy tickets to our show was the most nerve-wracking thing mm. but by the 50th time when you've had like 10 people say yes and 40 people say no mm. there's you know rejection doesn't matter mm. i think the more that you the more that you get rejected and the more that you convert in anything you're doing rejection with every single rejection feels less painful and to the point that you're basically numb to it yeah. but the rush of converting and succeeding <laughs> never dulls down yeah. So it's like yeah. you the more you do it, mm-hmm. the payoff becomes way more valuable because now, yeah, rejection is rejection is numbed, but mm-hmm. you keep getting the rush from the success. Yep, for sure. Um last question. Sure. Um the name of this podcast is On Meaningful Work. Mm-hmm. Um what does the term on meaningful work mean to you? I think it's it's really something that you're happy to I mean, meaningful work can obviously come from different places and it can often be something that provides value into the world around us. And that is something that I definitely try to do. Mm-hmm. But you can find that in most anything. If mm-hmm. if something exists, there is further meaning. Like I found just as much meaning, I found it extremely meaningful work to go out and play like songs for people who would mm-hmm. come and spend an hour feeling comfortable being an outcast. Like mm-hmm. that's really meaningful. Um, you know, but it's also incredibly meaningful working in a not-for-profit. Mm. But it's only truly meaningful if, I think, for you, you will sit there doing the grinding tasks, doing the mm. things, or getting uncomfortable and getting rejected because it's worth more to you mm. than just like a job. Yeah. Finally, like, you know, walking up and down and trying to do the charity sign-ups for that couple of weeks that I did it here, mm. and that... I was awful at that. Like I was not good at getting rejected for something I didn't care. I mean, yeah. I cared about the cause, mm. but I also felt very distant from it. It was like, I'm here signing people up on the street. Mm. Getting rejected for something that you don't find the same meaning in is very, very different mm. to something that you believe in wholeheartedly mm. because it's like the rejection doesn't, it's a like it glints off the armor and goes away. Mm. So I think meaningful work is something that you find where no matter how many hours you put in or how much you get knocked back, mm. that doesn't hurt as much as it feels good to keep pushing forward. Yeah. Wow. 
This has been amazing, Tony. Thank you Thanks, so mate. much. Uh, and also, you know, really, thank you so much for your patience while you're <laughs> screwing around with SD cards and so on. But nah, that's uh, all good. I really appreciate the time. And, yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Excellent, mate. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. That's R-A-H-U-L at disruptivebusinessnetwork, all one word, dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer, Dan Scahill, for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host, Rahul Sohn, signing off. Bye.